2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7 refers to Lot as righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. I'm not going to argue with Scripture, of course. Therefore, I presuppose when we read Genesis 19, or when I read Genesis 19, that Lot was indeed a righteous man. But the evidence that Scripture itself gives us concerning Lot's character could easily lead us to conclude otherwise if we didn't have the New Testament commentary on his life. Righteous Lot. After all, in Genesis 13, you remember that Lot chooses the better portion of land instead of deferring to his uncle's rightful claim to the land and instead of honoring his uncle Abraham as his senior. Now, of course, Abraham suggested that Lot have first pick of the land. So technically, you can't fault him for doing that. But when we read Genesis 13, we come away impressed with Abraham's character. We think what a generous, what a magnanimous character this is. That though having a rightful claim to the land, that though being the senior, he defers to the younger man and is generous with his nephew Lot. We come away impressed with Abraham's character. And we think that Lot does what basically anyone would do who is self-interested. It's not necessarily wrong, as I said, but we don't really come away impressed with Lot's character in Genesis 13. And here in Genesis 19, we actually have a worse display of Lot's character. And these two chapters, 13 and 19, are basically the significant events in Lot's life that are recorded for us in Scripture. So they basically form our portrait of Lot. Genesis 13 plus Genesis 19 equals the biblical portrait of Lot. And here in Genesis 19, we actually have a worse display of Lot's character than we had in Genesis 13. We see him doing things here that are explicitly sinful and, in fact, very perverted. And this is the last that we hear about him until the New Testament where he is called Righteous Lot. So let's examine what we see of Lot's character in Genesis 19 and then draw some applications for our own lives as we, like Lot and his uncle Abraham, seek to be righteous people in our day and age, saved by the same Messiah and obedient to the same law. First, let's look at Lot's righteousness. We see some righteousness here. And we see some things that in the judgment of charity we're going to consider as righteousness given the New Testament statement that he was a righteous man. The first thing that we see is hospitality. In Genesis 19, 1-3, we see that the two angels come to Sodom. And they're going to spend the night in the town square. And Lot comes to them in verse 2 and says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. This was a polite, courteous, right thing to do in this ancient culture. 
This was what good men did, was they offered hospitality. God is concerned about hospitality all the way through the Scriptures, such that even a qualification of New Testament pastors is that they be hospitable. So Lot does a good thing here. He may simply be doing a good thing for its own sake, or he may be additionally motivated to show hospitality because he knows what the men of Sodom are like, and he knows what will happen to visitors if they spend the night in the town square. So, when these guys say, no, we will spend the night in the town square, we read in Genesis 19 and verse 3, but he pressed them strongly. This is, this is very strong language. Hebrew scholars tell me that this means possibly even like he grabbed them. Like he, he pulled them and said no, <laughs> or shook them or something. It, it possibly even includes physical manhandling of these strangers. No, you need to come with me to my house. So this is a good thing that Lot does here. Hospitality. Okay, next. A misguided attempt at protecting his guests. Okay, so the men of the city, and, and it says, young and old, all the people to the last man. Genesis 19 and verse 4. So this isn't like a few perverts hanging out in the bad area of town. This is like the whole city. Which means that the whole city is so wicked. They gather at the door of Lot's house to gang rape the men who came to the city. This is what's going on in this passage. Alright. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Okay, again, righteousness. If there's a bunch of men at your door trying to gang rape visitors that came to you, to go out to them and close the door behind you and address them on behalf of your visitors is a courageous and a noble thing to do. So again, we're, we're looking at things that are in Lot's favor here. Recognizing that there is some evidence of what the New Testament labels, or some, some evidence for the way that the New Testament labels Lot. But I say it's a misguided attempt at protecting his guests. Because... He goes out and he closes the door behind him. And he addresses the group. So far, so good. But in verse 8, he offers this perverted suggestion that he's going to bring out his virgin daughters and let the men do what they want with his daughters instead. So more on this in a moment. But this is hardly an unimpeachable attempt to protect his visitors. Then we have the New Testament commentary on what was going on inside Lot. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, it says that he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. 
Okay, so Lot didn't secretly want to join them in their perversion. Lot actually was distressed by their perversion. Lot didn't like what was going on around him in Sodom. Alright, so here we have some evidence here that there's a guy who knows and loves Yahweh and is trusting in the promises that Yahweh has made concerning a Messiah who will make all things right and a man who is trying to live in obedience to Yahweh. Again, if we may say it anachronistically, a Christian. There is some sign of life here in Lot. When the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, speaks of somebody being righteous, they never mean, the biblical authors never mean without sin. Or meriting God's favor. Or anything like this. Righteousness always means a God-fearing man or woman who loves and trusts Yahweh, is resting his or her soul on the gracious promises of Yahweh, and is endeavoring to live in sincere obedience to God. In other words, again, speaking anachronistically, a Christian. This is, this is the way that the Bible uses that term. So there is some evidence here all right, of Lot's faith in Yahweh, of Lot's relationship to Yahweh. The New Testament tells us explicitly, but I just want to point it out here as we go so we're not utterly confused. If I can say it yet a third time, Lot is a Christian, if we can use those terms. All right, Lot is a trusting in the Messiah, believing in the Messiah, man. So that's Lot's righteousness. Sadly, that's probably the most that we can say about his righteousness. There's not really a lot. If you go back and review everything we've covered so far, Genesis 19 is the last that we hear about Lot until the New Testament. There's probably not a lot more that we can really say in favor of this guy. He's not a shining example of what godly living looks like. He's not a shining example of the Christian life. Here in this passage, Lot's unrighteousness is on full display. We recognize that even the righteous sin. And that might sound like an oxymoron, like a door that is open and closed. It cannot be something that is black and white at the same time and in the same way. A righteous person who sins. But when we understand, again, the way that the Scripture speaks about righteousness, it's not talking about moral perfection. It's talking about somebody who is in right relationship to Yahweh by grace through faith in the Messiah and somebody who is trying to live a righteous, obedient life. That's what the scripture means when it talks about a righteous person. And of course we know that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, believers sin. As we read through the, New Te- the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't find story after story after story of heroes who are impeccable in their obedience, who are 
without blemish in their fidelity to Yahweh. What we actually read about is people like us, very much like us, who love the Lord and yet also kind of struggle to love the Lord. People who love their neighbor and yet also kind of struggle to love their neighbor. People who want to worship God and ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name, but kind of struggle to worship the Lord and to ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name. And what we find is that there is one perfect and spotless hero who comes to rescue all of these others. That's the meta-narrative of Scripture. And so it really shouldn't surprise us when we come to the story of Lot, who is called a righteous man, and we see unrighteousness. And that is certainly what we do, in fact, see. Lot's unrighteousness is on full display. First of all, as I have already mentioned, in Genesis 19 and verse 8, Lot offers his daughters for sexual exploitation. What? What are you thinking? This is one of the most filthy and egregious things that you could possibly think of doing. Of all the sins in Scripture that you see God's people committing, surely this is one of the worst. There is a group of men at the door of Lot's house wanting to gang rape his visitors. And Lot says, don't do it to the visitors, do it to my daughters. Are you kidding me? That's so evil. That's so wicked. That's disgusting, Lot. Some biblical commentators talk about ancient Near Eastern law codes and how if a woman is engaged to be married to a man and she is sexually violated prior to the consummation of her marriage to her husband, then the person who violated her is to be put to death. And so some of these commentators say that maybe Lot is trying to trap them in a legal quandary. Well, let me just say this. If that's what Lot is doing, Lot's an idiot. Because these guys are here to gang rape the visitors. These guys don't care about the ancient Near Eastern law codes. These guys are filthy perverts at the door to commit sexual violence. So, however you conceive of it, whether Lot is trying to be wily here and trap them in a legal game, or whether Lot is just literally just holding out his daughters as objects for the sexual gratification of these perverts at his door. This is a evil, tremendously wicked thing that Lot does here in this situation. It's the exact opposite of what a good man would do in this situation. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Do not be deceived. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. What we see is that Lot went into Sodom. And Sodom went into Lot. He's thinking like a Sodomite in this situation here. Beware. Then we see Lot neglecting to lead his family in the things of God. You say, where do we see that? Look at verse 14. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Why would he seem to his sons-in-law to be jesting? A pastor in the UK named Jeremy Walker pointed out that the only way he would seem to be jesting is if he had never spoken seriously and earnestly with his sons-in-law about the holiness and the judgment of God before. If it just came out of the blue. They weren't used to hearing Lot talk like this. They weren't used to hearing Lot pleading for their souls. Speaking to them of, about sin and righteousness, judgment, and gospel, Yahweh's promises. He seemed to them to be jesting. What this means is that, by implication, obviously he kept his great distress about the sensual conduct of the wicked to himself. Inside, he was troubled about it. The New Testament tells us that. We can't dispute that. But he obviously hadn't been talking to his sons-in-law about his great distress about the sensual conduct of the wicked. There is great unrighteousness in refusing to talk to our family and our friends and our co-workers about serious matters. Would you seem to be jesting if all of a sudden you showed up to work and started talking about sin and judgment and God's holiness and atonement and reconciliation and adoption through Christ? Would you seem to your co-workers to be jesting because they never heard you talk that way before? Would they laugh and chuckle? Like you're going through a phase or something? Or what got into you? Or what happened to you this weekend? It's great unrighteousness. Not to express and give voice to, make explicit the great distress that we feel concerning the sensual conduct of the wicked all around us. Then we see in verse 16 a great indictment of Lot. In verse 15, the angels urge Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Another thing we can say about his great distress 
about the sensual conduct of the wicked is that it obviously wasn't as great as his great affection for Sodom. Here you have angels coming and saying, Up! The Lord is about to destroy this place. And Lot has great distress about the sensual conduct of the wicked all around him. But he won't leave. He's got heartstrings attached there. He has, on the one hand, great distress about the sensual conduct of the wicked, but on the other hand, he has great affection for Sodom. It feels like home. And then verses 18 to 20, we see Lot lingering again. In verse 17, the angel says, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Lot can't leave the vicinity. Lot cannot leave the region. Lot cannot leave the area. Look back at verse 16. He lingered, so the man seized him. Earlier, Lot had seized the angels. Now the angels seize Lot. He seized them because he knew what was going to happen to them. Now they seize him because they know what is going to happen to him. They seize him and they bring him out. And they say, go. Because the Lord is going to destroy this place. Escape to the hills. Make for higher ground. (coughs) But Lot won't leave the vicinity. Lot won't leave the region. Please just let me stay close to Sodom. If not in Sodom, leave me close to Sodom. Lingering again. Obviously his great distress wasn't as great as his great affection for Sodom. And sadly we see that if this was the case for Lot, it was much more the case for his wife. Verse 22, the angel says, Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Verse 23 says, Lot came to Zoah. Verse 24 says, Then, that is when Lot came to Zoar, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And then verse 26, 
But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. In our mind's eye, we might see Lot and his wife running hand in hand. And she takes a glance over her shoulders, and suddenly she turns into this pillar. Even as they're running, and Lot maybe lets go of her hand in shock or disgust. But what we actually see is that she was behind him. In other words, she didn't make it to Zoar, you know. Lot eventually goes to Zoar. He's reluctant, but he goes. But it says that Lot's wife was behind him. Remember, the angel said, I can't do anything until you get to Zoar, so go quickly. Then when Lot came to Zoar, that's when the judgment began. Lot's wife was behind him. This wasn't just an instance that quickly looking back over the shoulder as if she just made a technical error, disobeying the angel's instructions. Her heart was very much still in Sodom. It seems that she lingered behind him. She didn't go to Zoar with him. There was a deciding point here. And again, maybe this is, maybe I should have mentioned this earlier when we're talking about Lot's righteousness. But though Lot lingered, there was a deciding point where eventually he went. Lot's wife did not go. This may be an illustration of the ungodly or immature Christian over against the unbeliever. The ungodly or immature Christian lingers. But at last, the work of God is effectual in their life. There's some cooperation with the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Some conformity to the Word of God. Some willingness to leave the world behind and to go. But for the unbeliever, when push comes to shove, they ain't leaving Sodom. An, unbelie- an unbeliever, it seems, is what Lot's wife was. An ungodly and immature believer, it seems, is what Lot himself was. In view of what we've just seen, it's a wonder that the New Testament calls him righteous Lot. But because it does, we know that he was a God-fearing man. We know that he was a believer. But based on the evidence that we see here, he was an ungodly and immature believer. He was too worldly. What this teaches us by way of negative example is that apparently it is possible to be a believer 
but basically waste your life and end up with nothing but regrets. Let's unfold that a little further. Justification by faith makes room for sinful believers. Hear me carefully here. What I'm not saying is that justification by faith produces ungodly, immature, sinful persons. What I'm saying is that justification by faith gives us a category for thinking of somebody as being a Christian while at the same time struggling and in certain cases losing in the battle with sin. Because justification by faith tells us that Christianity is not fundamentally you trying to be a good person so that God will accept you. Christianity is not you fundamentally putting all your good deeds on one side of the scale and all your bad deeds on the other and making sure that the good outweighs the bad. Christianity is not about you meriting God's favor. Justification by faith teaches us that by works of the law, no one will be justified. And why will no one be justified by works of the law? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as James tells us, whoever stumbles in one point of the law has become accountable for all of it. So justification by faith starts here. You can't be justified by your works because you're a sinner. And your best works, if you were to bring them to merit God's favor, they'd be like filthy rags to God. There's a little kitten that we found in our backyard last week. And his eyes were shut, closed. Not, not because he was so little, but because they were covered with some kind of disgusting gunk. And being the animal lover that I am, I took a warm cloth and gently and tenderly wiped away that gunk from his eyes. Would you use that cloth to wipe your mouth after a meal? Filthy rags. You understand? We come to God with our righteousness to merit something from Him. And God says, get that away from me. Your righteousness, the best you have to bring, is filthy rags. The best you have to bring is a dirty cloth. Justification by faith then teaches us that the only persons that will be saved are sinners. Because the only kind of persons that there are are sinners. And they're saved by the merit of another. Namely, Jesus Christ. This is what justification by faith teaches us. So justification by faith gives us a category then for thinking, how can this person be a Christian and yet sin? 
Well, sin is what they've always done. The reason that they're a Christian is not because they're not a sinner, but because God has had mercy and has sent Jesus Christ to bear the wrath that that sinner deserves. So that that sinner can be pardoned for his sin or her sin on the merit of another. That's how the gospel works. So the gospel gives us a category for sinful Christians. The gospel doesn't give us a category, though, for Christians who never change at all. So I want to I get this point clear as we go on to talk about Lot as being an immature or a worldly Christian. There are those who espouse a teaching that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. Alright, now, depending what you mean by that, we could say that Lot is a carnal Christian. But what many persons mean when they say that is something like this. You can have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. And so you trust in Jesus to save you and your sins are forgiven, but you still live carnally because you haven't received Him as your Lord yet. And so, sanctification is kind of this thing that is disconnected in some people's minds from justification. So you can be reconciled to God, but not grow. Because your justification, since it's by faith, has nothing to do with your works. Therefore, you can be justified, and sanctification is kind of this bonus add-on for the super-spiritual persons in your church. You don't have to do it. You can be a carnal Christian if you want. The Bible teaches us that when God saves a person, He doesn't save a person only from the penalty of sin, but He saves a person also from the power of sin. He gives them a new heart. He causes them to be born again. And He puts His Spirit in them to make them walk in His statutes. Romans 8 goes so far to say that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. So, how are you going to be a born-again person with a new heart who has the Holy Spirit living within you but not live differently? Another way of looking at it is like this. Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is the Lord. So you either have Jesus, or you don't have Jesus. You can't, you can't, have, you can't have John the husband and father, but not John the pastor, as your friend. If I'm your friend, you're the friend of a husband and a father, and you're the friend of a pastor. You can't say I'm friends with this part of you, but not this part of you. So it is with Jesus. You don't get Him in parts. You get Him or you don't get Him. And so though our justification is not dependent upon our works, there is a change that happens 
God gives you a new heart. God puts His Spirit within you. At the same time, as He draws you to faith in His Son. And so if you're justified, you will then also be sanctified. I want to clarify that point now as I go on to talk about Lot being a worldly Christian. Because what I'm not saying is that Lot was utterly unchanged. Even as I've mentioned, there's evidences here. Which point in the direction of Lot, or maybe I should say, which corroborate what the New Testament says about Lot, that he was a righteous person. The New Testament doesn't say that in, in the absence of any evidence whatsoever, is maybe a better way to say it. But what we do see here, as I've just gone through some of Lot's sins that we see here in this section, is that Lot was a very immature believer. Lot was a very ungodly person. Lot was a very worldly person. He had not been changed the way to the same degree that many of the Old Testament saints that we read about were changed. There would have had to have been some change as he got a new heart. But there was obviously a lot left to be desired in terms of Lot's character. Lot leaves no legacy at best. You understand that the best way that we can assess Lot's legacy is to say that he had none. That's actually the best thing we can say. Because at worst, we can say that he leaves a shameful legacy. He fathers the Moabites and the Ammonites who become enemies of God's people Israel. And he fathers those nations with his own daughters. They get him drunk, so blithering drunk, that he's willing to sleep with them. And in fact, he's so drunk that he doesn't even remember what happened. So you can see that, this is why I say, literally the best thing we can say is Lot leaves no legacy. Because the worst thing that we can say, depending on how charitable we want to be, is that he leaves a shameful legacy of incest and of fathering the enemies of God's people for generations to come. I think Lot is a classic example of one described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul says this, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul's talking about Christians. Then he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, in other words, inflammables, 
wool, hay, and straw, in other words, flammables, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Law is an example of a Christian who builds on the foundation with wood, hay, and straw. What does Lot leave that is tested by fire and remains? Nothing. He himself is saved, but only as one other translation puts it, barely escaping the flames. danger here is that we would do the same. That we would be like Lot. The danger here is that we would linger. The danger here is that we would spend our lives building with wood, hay, and straw. Tinkering, frittering away our time, just merely passing our time instead of using our time. What causes you to linger? What keeps your heartstrings attached as Lot's heartstrings were attached? To that which is passing away. There is a way of living, even as Christians, in which we basically waste our lives. And come to the end and basically just have regrets. Again, if you are a genuine Christian, you're going to see some progress. You're going to see some Christian growth. You're going to see some evidence of a changed heart. And of the Holy Spirit living within you. But if the Lord should be so gracious as to let you die slowly with your full cognitive capacities about you, maybe laying in a room at QEH, and you look back on your life, there is a way of living, even as a Christian, where you would lay in that hospital room And think to yourself, I basically wasted it. 
I built with wood, hay, and straw. And my salvation is not dependent on my works, so I know I'm about to go and meet my Maker. And by His grace alone, I'm going to dwell in that eternal kingdom where righteousness dwells. But I am like one of those that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3 that is going to be saved as barely escaping the flames. And what I would give to go back and change it. Let me just give you a few things that won't land you in hell. but that loved inordinately will cause you to waste your life and leave you with regrets. The first is hobbies. I'm sure it's the same here. In North America, sports are a big one. Take up tons of your time. And you have Christians missing church to run in a marathon on Sunday. And you have Christians missing church because their kids are on travel teams, football, hockey, whatever, and they're out of town on the road playing sports. Brothers and sisters, when you're laying in that bed at QEH many years from now, And you look back, you're not going to say, I wish I missed more church services to kick a little ball around. I wish I spent less time singing the praises of the Almighty God and more time with a cricket bat in my hands. Sports are a big life waster. And take that from a former athlete. Sports can get such a grip on your heart and on your priorities, on your schedule, and on your money that you basically waste your life chasing around these things. Other activities could be anything. Cooking classes, musical instruments or other forms of art. It could be anything. Hobbies. You're not going to spend those last moments on earth laying in that bed thinking, I wish I had mastered the souffle. I could just never make a good souffle. I never, I never properly learned how to poach an egg. They were always a little bit too runny or a little bit too hard. Brothers and sisters, these are not the things that a Christian will think when you come to the gates of the celestial city. You're not going to wish you went back and did more of these things and less Bible reading and less prayer and less church attendance, and less discipleship. Let's go to entertainment. 
TVs, TV, movies, games. Again, these things have a way of taking hours of our time. We look back on a year and we, if we could add up the number of hours we spent playing this game or watching this show or even watching no show in particular but flipping through the channels. What a waste. When you add that up over decades and you come to the gates of the celestial city you can hear the trumpets, so to speak. And you know you're right there on the cusp. You would say, oh, that I had prayed. That I had looked more carefully at the Word of God. That I was more serious about helping others follow Jesus. And that I was more serious about following Jesus myself. When you come to the end of your life, you are not going to care about the television shows that you watch here and now. You're not going to care what level you got to in this game or that game or how many points you racked up or what your standings were in this online gaming community. These kinds of things are literally worthless. They have no lasting value. When they're tested by fire, they burn up. You are going to, if you spend your life on these things, you are going to have regrets. Career. We read earlier in the service that when you store up treasure on earth here, moth and rust corrupt. Thieves break in and steal. There is no guarantee that you will even go into your coffin with the net worth that you acquire at the pinnacle of your career. You can easily lose it even on this side. But one thing I can guarantee you is you cannot take it with you. Even if you get it and keep it here on this side. You cannot take it with you. It is not possible. Career is another one. I hope you can see that these things that I'm saying, I'm not saying don't watch TV. I'm not saying no games allowed, no sports allowed. I'm not saying quit your job. What I'm saying is, hold these things lightly and loosely. Prioritize what really matters. Don't linger. When God says up, don't linger. When God says, gives us positive duties, it's as if He's saying up. As the angel said up in chapter 19 and verse 15. When God says this is what you should be doing. This is the way you should be living. 
This is the priorities you should have in your life. This is what a Christian life looks like. No other gods before me. Don't speculate about me. Fear me. Honor my Sabbath day. Honor your parents. Don't take life. Give life. Don't be unfaithful. Be faithful. Don't steal. Labor. Work and be generous. Don't tell lies. Speak the truth. Don't covet. Be content with what you have. When God says these are the things that make for life, this is what matters. And we don't do it. We're like Lot. We're lingering. I can't go do that. Because if I do that, it will affect my career. I can't go do that. Because if I do that, I'm not going to have enough time to play sports. I can't go do that. Because if I do that, then I'm not going to be able to watch my favorite show on Thursday night. When we, when we have our positive duties... When we hesitate to do our positive duties, these things that God says we should be doing, because of other things, we're like Lot, lingering. Lingering. So up. The angel said it to Lot, and so I say to you tonight, up. Up. Do what makes for life. Do what makes for lasting value. Build not with wood, hay, and straw, but with gold, with silver, with precious metals. Build with what is of value. Spend your life well. Get up. Get out of Sodom. Don't let this place have an inordinate pull on your heart. Set your heart on that lasting kingdom. On that greater treasure. Run for higher ground. Make for higher ground. May we not be like those who linger. Even as Christians, may we not linger. We're not saved by our works. But may we not then excuse the absence of works on the grounds of our justification by faith. We're not saved by our response to this command, up. But because we're not saved by this response, may we not linger. May we be those who spring to our feet at God's command to run for higher ground. May we be those who speak regularly, earnestly, and sincerely with those around us to do the same. May we be those who do not keep our distress about the conduct of the wicked to ourselves, but share it with others. May our families be sanctuaries of godly culture. May our church be a sanctuary of godly culture. Havens for us as we are surrounded by great wickedness on every side. May we run in the path of God's commandments rather than linger in Sodom. May these things be said of us. May we learn 
from Lot's negative example that it is possible to be a believer but basically waste your life and end up with mostly regrets at the end. Will we not live like that? But when God says up, will we refuse to linger? 